Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Hey, South family, just before you watch this week's sermon, I have to let you know about why it's so different. Uh, we had a power outage at the church, so we ran a service in the lobby because we had natural light through the windows there and we had almost no technology. So this recording quality is a little bit lower as far as audio and video and stuff is concerned, but we wanted still to post it for you. So here it is. Sorry about the audio. Oh man, what an adventure of a weekend, eh? Uh, are there any gardeners in the building today? Any gardeners? How many of you guys have come here with like deep existential questions about the fairness of the world right now? It's like, why do bad things happen to good gardeners? I don't know, they just, they just do. But we get, to, we get to embrace this type of church. And what's kind of fun about this is, is in truth, for those of you that are familiar with Worldwide Church and travel at all, we are tapping into something that is just normal in so many parts of the world uh, to, to meet in an environment that is just thrown up. And maybe for some of you who've been around South for a long time, it, it taps into some old history of South of having to set things up, of having to pack everything away, uh, of having stuff that isn't always working perfectly. Now we just don't have any stuff at all. It's just simply the power of my voice. Um, and so we'll see what we can do. Uh, but it, there's something about that. I was in the Philippines uh, years ago and just meeting in a church community that simply meets in a, in a building of wood with some corrugated sheets on the top with benches made of two by four uh, and a stone floor. And that's, that's church. And I remember thinking, how often would I go? How would I engage uh, if this was my church all the time? And yet you just feel something in this time, singing together, worshiping together. There's something here uh, beyond just people gathering. I also love that meeting out here means that I get to see who's late. Uh, so I just catch a like, ah, I see it, I'm on to you. Usually you think you can sneak in and you turn up today and you're like, oh no, I'm walking into a room full of people. So uh, I'll know for next time. So just, yeah, think about that. If you didn't need judgment in church. Um, so John 21, we're in this series that is really tapping into the resurrection appearances uh, of Jesus. Jesus spends time after his death and resurrection just going around and, and almost collecting back into the story some of these followers of his that seem like they've they've gotten detached from the story. We looked at a lady called Mary Magdalene, this couple that are on a road to a, a little village just getting out of town. We looked at Thomas with all his doubts. And then last week we looked at Peter, who's maybe in a, a bit of a spot of despair and watched as Jesus pulls him back in. The good news is we get to do two weeks on Peter. Uh, next week, the great Dan Elliott will come and talk to us about a guy called James. We're doing two weeks on Peter. Why? Because Peter is so fundamentally messed up that he needs two weeks to figure him out. I, I love Peter because he reminds me of me. Um, he's all passion and he's very much into the story, but he just doesn't get it right very often. He gets it wrong as much as he gets it right. And there's something about that personality that's just delightful, really. We're going to kind of compare and contrast him a little bit to this other guy, John. And, and, and John's just too good for me. I can't handle John. Like, everything's perfect with him. Uh, and Peter, a delightful mess. So let's 
for those of you that weren't with us last week, we're going to track back and uh, just see what happened last week. Because it looks, it looks last week like the story's come to like a good resolution. John 21, if you're following along uh, in a text, if you want to follow along on a screen, good luck. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. This reminds me of the times I've been asked to preach in other countries and, and I'm like, who do I send my keynote to? And they're like, you don't. <laughs> That's not a thing here. Work for it. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. They said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. The whole passage sent us around that word, nothing. Without Jesus, they can do nothing. Without Jesus, they have nothing. Without Jesus, they are potentially nothing. We, they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, in the Greek language, children. Children, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net onto the right side of the boat and you will find some. And that moment, they're like, huh, feels like we did something like this before. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. Classic Peter move. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they had landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus encounters this disciple Peter alongside a fire. The last time they have been by a fire together, Peter has denied Jesus. And there's just the potential that every time he smells a fire, every time he experiences what it is to stand around this simple thing, he remembers the last time he did that. It's just a potential that every time he catches that beautiful whiff of campfire, it taps him back into oh, this is where I failed. This is where it all went wrong. And this wonderful Jesus kind of retcons, retroactive continuities, the fire for him. He, he comes alongside it. And now, now potentially, every time Peter will sit by a fire, he gets to remind himself that Jesus was incredibly good to him. That Jesus pulled him back into the story. Jesus takes something that could be traumatic and turns it into something wonderful. I can see some of you when I'm talking about fire, you're like, ah, oh, I could just, I could just picture it right now. I could feel it. I started a fire in the sanctuary last week and would have been better this week, if we're honest. Uh, there is this moment uh, that it seems like Jesus has pulled Peter back into the story and, and he asks Peter three questions as though he still needs, knows Peter needs something more from him. Really, what we looked at last week is Peter needs confession he needs to be able to come alongside Jesus and say the same thing as he needs to agree with Jesus about who he is yes he's a failure yes he's broken yes he rarely gets it as right as he'd like 
But Jesus is constantly good and constantly pulls him back into the story. And, and really what we see is Jesus ask him the same question three times. Do you love me? And Peter's response is initially kind of, yeah, I, I, I'm trying. And in the end, it's like the last time. It's almost like the surrender of, you know everything. You know all things. You know that I love you. You know that I'm not always who I want to be. You know that I'm regularly a mess. Regularly, I promise more than I can deliver. Regularly, I make the same mistakes over and over again. But Jesus, I, I love you and I'm in this story with you. There's this beautiful moment where Jesus pulls this wandering disciple back in and, in and gives him purpose again. And it looks for just a second like the story's finished with perfect symmetry. These gospel, these biographies of Jesus' life, they begin with follow me and they end it seems for a moment with follow me as Jesus asks Peter those questions he says to him feed my sheep very truly I tell you when you were younger you dressed yourself and went where you wanted but when you were older you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death which Peter would glorify God. The tradition in the church history is that Peter eventually will not deny Jesus. Peter will be arrested. He will be sentenced to crucifixion. And in the moment where he's about to be crucified, will say, I'm not worthy to die in the same way of Jesus who I follow. And chooses to be crucified upside down. Because again, Jesus' path for him, he seems unworthy of the final words that we see from Jesus in this little sentence are follow me and it seems like we began with follow me and we'll end with follow me and wouldn't that be a delightful symmetry to the story except as that is so often there's just a little bit more. This writer John that put together the, these stories for us he excels in this wonderful thing in this incredible way he takes group events and he almost helps everybody else disappear from the scene so we get to focus on just Jesus and one other person for those of you that like movies uh, the, there is a movie on um, Pride and Prejudice the Jane Austen novel uh, and the director wanted to tap into dancing in this culture and just how intimate it was as, as an experience in a culture where you weren't allowed to spend time with someone of the opposite sex it, it really was one of the most intimate experiences you could have before you were married. And so in this scene, you watch as the two main characters, Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet, begin dancing together in a room full of people. And then slowly, the director fades out everybody else from view. And so it's just the two of them. Everybody else has disappeared. And, and John, this writer, does this over and over again. There's a moment where there's a crowd, and sometimes physically, uh, in a story where Jesus encounters a woman caught in adultery, Physically, everybody else disappears from the scene, but, but quite often just in terms of his writing as a literary device, people just slowly disappear and you're left with Jesus and one person and it's regularly life-changing. For a second, it seems like that's what's happened here. Jesus encounters Peter, this disciple who's kind of on the fringe, and he pulls him back in. And it seems like the perfect symmetry. It began with Peter, follow me. It can end with Peter, follow me. And then something happens. Verse 20 of John 21. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. 
This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? What about him? Now, if you know Peter's character, Peter struggles a little bit with distraction. We're going to look at another story about Peter in Matthew chapter 19. Again, text people, feel free to flick over. In Matthew chapter 19, Peter has what you might call one of his heroes, sorry, 14, has one of his hero moments. Uh, Verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up onto the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they cried. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. That is classic, Peter. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? This is just who Peter is. He makes these bold, brave steps, all passion. He's the only disciple that asks if he can walk on water. He's the only one that climbs out of the boat. He's the only one that lets go of the side. And everything is going so well until the moment where something else grabs his attention. The wind and the waves and all of those different things. And, and Jesus' gentle response, or maybe a little annoyed response, is Peter, focus Focus on me. There it's an event. In the story we just read, it's a person. It's John. Interestingly, John, who loves to create these stories where everyone else fades out of view and it's just Jesus and one person, is the person who is interrupting this story. He breaks his pattern this last time. He becomes the interrupter. He becomes the distraction. He, he becomes the point of, I would suggest, of envy for Peter. There's a proverb, Proverbs 19.40, that says this, a tranquil heart creates joy, but envy rots the soul. Envy rots the soul. There is something about the relationship between Peter and John that just says to him, "Ah, it was going so well, Jesus and I were interacting, we were having good conversation, and, and now something has interrupted that. Have you ever had that feeling of just the somebody else, somebody else that you, you, they just get to you on some level. There's something about their life, maybe all the things that they have, something about your relationship with them that it just nags at you. And it seems like that is Peter and John. I was listening to a podcast a while back and this psychologist was talking about this client he had. And he couldn't obviously reveal his name because of confidentiality, but he was just talking about the experience of working with this client who was vastly successful. Incredibly successful person, had founded companies, had achieved so many things, had graduated highly in college, but but kept talking about how he, he didn't really have a very high view of himself, had constant sort of inferiority complex. And this psychologist said, I I just had to get to the bottom of this. So I just started asking questions. And as we talked more, he started to talk about his college roommate and how this college roommate was just 
so much more successful than him and he felt inferior to this person. As he unpacked it, it turns out his college roommate was Elon Musk, uh, who had founded at this point PayPal and Tesla uh, and all of these different things. And you can understand the inferiority, right? Somewhere, John and Peter, there is something that when John walks into the scene, Peter's like, what about this guy? Jesus, if you're telling me I'm going to get taken where I do not want to go, if I'm going to go through all of these experiences, what about John? What's going to happen to him? Why does this bug Peter so much? To understand why, we need to, to get back to a, a little event that happened earlier in John. So again, text people. John chapter 13, we're going to read from verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Again, such a Peter move. Okay, don't wash my feet. No, no, if you're going to do that, then wash other stuff as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew that who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not every one of you is clean. I'm going to skip down a little bit more to verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was very troubled in spirit and testified very truly, I tell you, one is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it into the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. This uh, is a scene around a table. Uh, now, it's a bit hard for us to jump into this contextually in the 21st century. The best example I could give you was if you've been to a wedding, you maybe had that experience of going to look at the list of where people are sat to find out where you are sat. And you've had that moment of like, wow, that, that's a pretty good table. I didn't realize that, you, that we were that close. You've sat me fairly close to the center of the action. That feels like a, a big deal. Or maybe you've had the opposite experience. Have you gone to look at the list and be like, I didn't realize they could get like 104 tables in here. You've got me on table 140, 104. And, and that's really embarrassing when we're family. Like I expected, I expected to be a little closer than that. That's kind of what seating looks like at something like a Passover meal, something like they're doing. I, I tend to picture things as kind of linear. So so when I think about this table setting, I think about one of the big tables we have over in this side of the room. And very much like Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting, I think of Jesus in the middle. And then the disciples sort of either side of him and, and the action sort of pulls away from Jesus. Jesus is the center. Everything else is here. That wasn't 
what a table looked like in the first century. In actual fact, this room really helps us understand this. There would be the first part of the table that would come along here, and then a second part of the table that would come this way, and then a third part of the table that would come this way. And the host, the most important person in the room, in reality, would sit over here, one space from the right. And then the guest of honor would sit here on his right, and the second guest of honor would sit here on his left. And then the least important person would sit all the way over here at this point of the table. And, and kind of in seniority, kind of in importance, in influence, it would move around the room so you would get less important, less. It's very much a graduated system all the way down to there. When we read that John leans across to Jesus and reclines on him so we can ask him a question, that means that John is sat here and Jesus is sat here. John, the youngest disciple, is in the place of honor, the most important seat. And to be able to make a signal to him, to be able to talk to him, Peter, the guy that's followed Jesus from the beginning, the most senior, the most important, the leader of the group, the one that always speaks up, the one that's helped Jesus with his ministry so much, all those different things. Well, Peter, Peter's all the way over here in the last spot. That means that when there was no servant present, that means if someone needed to wash feet because there was no servant, supposed to be the guy in this seat. That means when Jesus gets up and washes feet, Peter has all of these moments like, that's supposed to be me. That's really awkward. That means that Peter gets to sit there all the way through the Passover meal and look at everybody else in a better seat and list for himself all of the reasons that he should be sat where they are. That means that when any of the disciples have to think about who is Jesus talking about when he is talking about a betrayer, who's the person that they're likely to suspect? It's the person in this thing. It's the person that used to be in the place of honor, that used to be over here somewhere, and he's now all the way down there. Another interesting little kernel of all this is that if John is sat here, and Jesus is sat here, we're told that Jesus says to John, the person that will betray me is the person to whom I pass this bread. And there's only two people at the table, two seats that Jesus can pass bread to directly. There's John sat here who asked the question, and there's the second seat of honor on his left. That means that we have John here, and we have Jesus here, and Judas is sat here. Judas is in the second place of honor. Judas that will betray him is in the seat next to Jesus. And so imagine all of the things that go through Peter's mind as he sits there and watches this meal take place and the frustrations in him that say, I should be in one of these seats. I should really be over there where John is. How did he get that spot? What is he doing there? This is unfair. We get a little picture into Peter's world, what it is to, to experience envy rotting the soul. Now, of course, you probably haven't been invited to a Passover meal recently. You probably haven't been invited to, to sit in that kind of environment. And you probably haven't been given the worst seat either. What is it in your world? What is it in my world that creates that same experience that Peter has around John? Because I would suggest... In our world, there's actually 
tons of things, right? There's tons of things that put us into that place of, no, this, this thing is just working at me. Maybe it's a, an individual person, a particular person. Maybe it's lots of people, but our whole world is almost designed to create those kind of emotions, particularly around things like social media. We, we get that concept, right? I've got to keep up with the Joneses. There's so much stuff, or maybe the Cardassians, or whoever it is for you. There's so many of those things going on that we get to look into people's world and say, I should be sitting in that seat. I want what they have. It looks so much better over there. I rarely post stuff on social media, which is a deep frustration for our connections director who's like, that would be really useful to me in my job if you would say anything on any social media environment. But, but I really am not particularly fussed. The other day, yesterday, I posted something uh, just for this sermon, really. I posted a picture uh, of me and my kids building a snowman on May 20. First, and just that, that window that people get into our lives. And, and if you were to look at my history of social media, you would believe that my life was one constant ski trip or adventure with my wife and kids. And everyone always dressed perfectly and everyone behaved perfectly. And we were always doing fun things together. Because what I do when I put things on social media is I put on my best of moments for those sports center fans, like the highlight reel. I put on those things. When we engage with social media, what happens so often is we compare our our, someone else's best of moments to our rest of moments. We, we compare them to just the general everyday experiences of our lives. So, of course, the other thing looks better. It has to. It's made to look better. In actual fact, the snowman that I so carefully curated and posted on Facebook and Instagram, it actually fell down like three seconds later. I actually think <laughs> Elena was holding it up during the photo. And isn't that just a window into how we interact around social media? We see one little snippet and it tells us life is good. And it tells us, I want that. And slowly envy gets to rot the soul. We look at other relationships and they seem so perfect. We look at people's houses and they seem so tidy. We look at people's cars and they seem so nice. And slowly, 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 there are the envy rots the soul. Why else? Because there's other things as well. I think sometimes in that engagement, what we actually find out we're doing and not realizing it is that we're actually comparing uh, something that's real with something that's fake. One of my favorite movies of the last few years is a movie called Yesterday. It's kind of about the Beatles, uh, and so you can see why I like it. Big Beatles fan. And, and in this story, the Beatles, through this massive world event, nobody remembers them. They have ceased to exist. You can Google them, and, and all you get are the car and the bug uh, and none of the music. Uh, and so this this sort of aspiring singer-songwriter decides, you know what I'm going to do? I remember all these Beatles songs for some strange reason when nobody else does. I'm going to start writing them all and singing them all. And I'm going to become really famous. And so he does, and he does. It's a massive success story. But, but in the moment of writing all these songs and creating this brilliant career, he runs into Ed Sheeran, the real-life Ed Sheeran, actually famous, actually writing wonderful songs. And Ed Sheeran says, as they're hanging out with a group of friends, we should have a contest right here, right now. Let's both of us go into a room and we'll write the best song we can in 10 minutes. 
Can't be something old, can't be something you've done before, can't be something in your back pocket, it has to be new. And so Ed Sheeran goes into a room and he comes back with this just delightfully simple yet poignant song about love. We are just penguins on the ice, we're not meant to fly, but we can try. Just a little evocative melody, all those different things. And everyone loves it and cheers. And then Jack Malik, the hero of the movie, comes back and he sings The Long and Winding Road, possibly the greatest, most poignant Beatles song of all time. And of course, everyone is, is just, just astounded that someone in this moment could write something so, so spectacular. Ed Sheeran actually says, man, these things are complicated, except for you, they're not, are they? It's simple for you. He has this moment where he says, we're not even voting because you, someone said someone would come along that was better than me and you, Jack, are in a different league. What's happening in that story? What's happening in that moment? Ed Sheeran is comparing something real, something that he wrote to something that, okay, maybe it's real in the sense it's a song, but is it, is it real? In fact, it's not. It's not the purpose of the thing. And, and I think we do the same thing in our lives as well. We look at other people around us and we say, that looks real. I want that. And so often what we're looking at isn't real. We don't know all of the details. Sometimes we compare somebody else's best of to our rest of. We compare somebody else's fate to our real. And then finally, I think we look at other people. And we see the success, but not the sacrifice that went with it. I used to experience all the time, this is all the time coaching soccer players in Michigan. Coaching high schoolers, I would regularly have people come up to me and say, I really want to be a Premier League player or a famous soccer player. What do I have to do? And sometimes there was just the honest answer of, that, that's just not going to be your story. Often I would get parents ask me the same question. What does this son of mine have to do to be a Premier League player? And, had this crushing moment of realizing apparently British people are here to kind of evaluate American talent. We do that in all of these song shows like X Factor and now I'm doing it for 17 year old soccer players. But, but sometimes what I would say is this, you need to try harder. You need to actually want this more than you do because right now you turn up for practice late and you don't actually put in a lot of effort and you kind of just hang around goofing around the rest of the team. Like there's so much that I look at and say, I don't see any success because I don't actually see any sacrifice. In that movie yesterday, it's interesting that, that uh, Ed Sheeran makes this kind of cryptic reference. He says to Jack Malik, this now famous but not famous person, he says to him, you're Mozart and I'm Salieri. It's this reference to these two musicians from centuries before and the story is that Mozart was incredibly talented and Salieri was talented, but not in the same league as Mozart. Mozart would write pieces of music from scratch with no corrections. He would just, he would pluck them out of the air and pour them out on paper. Salieri was always frustrated that someone like Mozart, who seemed to live, Mozart lived a pretty R-rated life. There was nothing really PG-13 about him. And, and the Salieri found this deeply frustrating. Why would God gift talent to this person who seemed to ignore God completely? In actual fact, if anything's unfair, it's that interpretation of Mozart. Mozart began piano lessons when he was four. Mozart was writing pieces of music at six, and there's pieces of music that he sweated over and slaved over that we never listen to anymore. Mozart was, if anything, the product of someone who gave and he gave and he gave and he gave. 
wasn't just that everything came easy. It was that he had talent that he worked to hone and create. And I think just like the other two things, just like comparing our rest of to somebody else's best of, just like the way that we compare somebody else's fake to our real stuff. I think we look at other people's lives and say, oh man, I can see, I can see all of this success. But we miss the part where they gave and gave and gave. And I think that's what Peter does Peter looks at John in this moment and says, I'm about to suffer. I'm about to go all through all of these things. What about John? It's interesting. It doesn't bother him. Jesus' prediction that he'll die for Jesus one day doesn't actually bother him. It's when he finds out that somebody else in his mind is going to get it easier than he has it, that he has a problem. Why does John have to go through this? If you're going to put John in the seat of honor, Jesus, shouldn't he have to do this too? I wonder whether Jesus is actually right, whether Peter's actually right about John. Peter, true, dies for Jesus. He dies in this incredibly painful way. But isn't that much easier than what John will go through? History tells us John will be the last disciple left alive. Long after the others, many of them have been killed for their faith, long after the rest have died, John will still be there, banished to an island called Patmos, writing letters to churches by himself. Year after year after year, 90, 91, 92, 93, still no Jesus returning, still waiting for the story to finish just by himself with none of the community, none of the people to share the stories with, just him, just waiting. He's the only person now that remembers what it was to, to talk to Jesus face to face. And still, when is he coming back? When is the story going to finish? I don't know that John gets it way easier than Peter does think their stories are just different. Uh, and when Jesus wants to give Peter an answer to his question, what about him? That's where Peter lands, as com- as where Jesus lands as, comfort- as uncomfortable as that can be for us at times. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. This is what you've been trained for, Peter. This is what you're called to do. Now Peter will be asked to do a new type of following. For years he's followed Jesus. When he gets to see him physically, he's followed him step for step. And now Jesus says, now you'll have to follow me with no physicality. Just just that inner voice, just that spirit guiding you. But you, Peter, you're not here to question somebody else's journey. You're here to follow me. When the Bible, when this proverb says envy rots the soul, I think it's trying to help us understand that, that that decision to focus all of our energy on somebody else's journey is ultimately flawed and ultimately damaging to our own journey. Another proverb outside of the biblical uh, language simply says this, that, that comparison is a, in fact a form of self-harm. There's something about comparing how somebody else is doing and what their journey looks like that in actual fact is deeply damaging to us. Jesus' solution that he gives to Peter is, Peter, don't worry about him. Don't worry about the seat over there. Don't worry about what they have. Don't worry about what their journey looks like. You follow me. You follow me. And and so when I feel that that's challenging, there's something that I do. There's a psalm that I'd love to share with you. Psalm 25. In those moments where I'm like, I don't know what following looks like. And everybody else's journey looks better than mine. And I want what this other person has. And the seat that John has looks better than the seat that I have. 
in that moment, Psalm 25 is this just, just great source of wisdom. This is verse four. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me for you. You are God, my savior. And my hope is in you all day long. And then it goes on to add something just for those of us that like Peter, feel like we regularly misstep on that journey. Regularly feel like he shows us paths that we fail to take, that we should have taken and look back again like Peter and say, man, time and time again, I make the same mistakes over and over. He throws in this little verse at the end. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are of old. Jesus' solution to, to Peter's envy, to Peter's desire to have what John has to sit at the chair, but John has to have the journey that John will have is is Jesus, is Peter, keep your eyes on me. This is the journey that I have. When I started uh, doing a ministry job years ago, someone gave me a list of 10 things to remember while pastoring the church, and I've forgotten nine of them. But the first one, I remember like it was yesterday. It says simply this, follow Jesus on the journey he has for you. Invite other people along. That seems to be where Jesus lands with Peter. Peter, you follow me. And I wish I could take that sentence and just tweak it a little bit. And because I'm talking to you, I can. Uh, so I have that privilege. I wish it said this. Follow Jesus on the journey he has for you with gratitude. Invite other people along. There is something about gratitude as a practice that enables us to look at what we have and say, I have so many good things. Now, are there stories that sometimes there will be just so much brokenness? Yes. Are there stories where it's hard to find what that kernel is? Yes. But somewhere for most of us sitting in this room, there is something about the story we have been gifted that we get to look at and say, God, I'm stood by a fire with all of my mistakes and all of the ways that these things could remind me of failure. And yet what I see is this. You have been good. And I am grateful. Let's pray. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.